be bold and be brave and just go for it. As photographers, we are always looking for powerful images that, that will hold time in place, that will draw people in and symbolize something universal, something shared, something emotional. Everybody needs to see what's going on everywhere. Pictures just stand out. This is how we remember. Insights, kits, and the conversations that matter with the world's leading photographers and filmmakers in Shutter Stories. How do we see? What happens to our brains when we experience colors and light? And how can we use this knowledge to create images and videos with more impact? In today's episode of Shutter Stories, we're joined by someone who spent the last few years getting to the heart of these questions and more. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Laura Tantawi. I'm a photographer and a Canon ambassador, and I'm your host for today's episode. We're joined by director of photography, Ian Murray. Ian is known for shooting adverts for high-profile clients, as well as for his own series, Set Notes, which you can currently find on Instagram. He's recently embarked on a scientific quest to discover the truth about how we see, and he's here today to share his findings with us. Welcome to Shutter Stories, Ian. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really delighted to, to have you on the show today, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion, which I think is going to be a fascinating topic. Light is something that occupies photographers and filmmakers. Why do you think that is, Ian? Uh, well, I think uh, light is a fundamental element of our consciousness. I, I think it's very actually very hard to separate the two. Uh, and actually, the journey I've taken with this is understanding how they can't be separated. Um, and the, the research I've been doing into, into, into the process of, of vision has led me down the path of understanding more about what it is to be human, what consciousness is. It's been... Um, kind of like going down a rabbit hole in a sense. Yeah, and I think this bit is particularly fascinating, understanding not just the emotional way that light affects us, but also the psychological way. And I think this is what makes your research particularly interesting. Um, so we're going to be diving in all of this shortly, but first, um, can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to find out more about the science of vision? And was there like a specific event let, that let you down this path of discovery? Uh, yes, there was actually. Um, I have to sort of start off being a little bit personal because um, basically I had a kind of health condition that was a kind of digestive kind of stomach crampy condition. Uh, and I spent uh, a lot of my time and energy uh, trying to find a cure for it. And in that process, I actually had a near death experience. Um, and that experience basically was a point in my life where I had to re-question everything that I felt I understood as being true. Uh, and so I actually started investigating consciousness after I had that experience. Um, and in that process of investigating consciousness, I started realizing I'm also having to investigate the process of vision, which obviously what well, I was interested in anyway, because I was, you know, I was a working cinematographer at that time. So I, I started realizing that to, to, to understand consciousness, you have to understand the visual process and vice versa. So um, I started looking into... Um, uh, into neuroscience, uh, 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 physicists and, uh, and evolutionary biologists uh, and started sort of researching what they were saying about the process of vision. And I discovered some really quite shocking stuff. I mean, that sounds incredibly intense and life-changing, but it sounds like you've taken like a potentially negative situation and you've managed to find a way forward that's obviously been very positive for you. Um, I'm interested to know like what specific discoveries you made and how that actually changed you the way you worked. Well, the, the 
biggest discovery, I think the first discovery I should talk about um, is uh, how flawed the actual uh, anatomy of the eye is. You know, I've always believed that the eye, you know, we've been taught that the eye is the best lens ever. And, you know, it's got this amazing ability to to catch it, uh, imagery. Well, in fact, actually, the actual, the anatomy of the eye, there's certain flaws uh, that we have with our eyes, with human eyes, that, that a lot of people aren't actually necessarily aware of. So, for example, uh, our eyes have a, what's called a rear-facing retina, which basically means that the photoreceptive part of the retina is actually facing away from the lens, which is like having your sensor on your camera facing the opposite way to your lens. I mean, it's just crazy. So light actually has to pass through uh, a bunch of kind of um, uh, vessels and, uh, and veins in order to get through to the light receptive area. Uh, and the second thing is we have actually very big blind spots in the eye. Because of this rear-facing retina, the, the nerves have to actually go through what they call uh, the optic disc, which is actually a hole in our vision, which is actually in the middle of our vision. So we have quite a big blind spot that we're not consciously aware of. And the third thing is that we have um, very, very few uh, nerves that connect our retina to our visual cortex. So it's actually amazing that we can see anything at all, to be honest. That's incredible. But I was just thinking as I'm, as I'm hearing you, I'm, it sounds almost like you're more of an optometrist than um, a DOP. I mean, has research been something you've always been really interested in or is that just where your journey took you? Uh, it's, no, it's, I mean, I, I spent years of not understanding, kind of having an emotional sort of connection with my work, but without actually understanding necessarily the mechanism behind it. Uh, and... Uh, so it's only recently I started researching this stuff. Like I said, through that near-death experience, I started looking into consciousness. And then I stumbled across uh, neuroscientists that were talking about consciousness, but they were using vision as, as an example of explaining that. Uh, and, um, I mean, basically, they, their theories were so groundbreaking. I mean, one of them, for example, is that we have this understanding of physical reality, and we believe that through the history of physics, you know, through time and space, you know, this theory of time-space, uh, that that is that we're, we're humans experiencing a physical reality, and all of this stuff is deeply sort of challenged by these new this new wave of physicists and this new wave of neuroscientists. So, in in the, in the research of that, I started realizing how relevant it is to what I do. So I started having to understand the sort of um, anatomy of the eye in order to understand how it how it really affects us. That's all really fascinating, but I'm interested. Like, what was the biggest surprise you encountered? on this on this journey that you've been on and it could be something that's particularly personal about you about yourself but also something that's quite general the most fundamental kind of um challenge to my understanding my assumption of life the most fundamental was a kind of question of identity so what i realized when i was on this journey is that basically we don't have we don't have a sort of direct access to physical reality like the way we we think we do for example um if you take the electromagnetic spectrum, we, there's only a small portion of that that's what's called a visible portion of the electromagnetic spectrum, which we are visibly aware of. But um, as humans, we, have, you know, we, we see from beyond the ultraviolet through to just before infrared. Um, so we don't, we, don't see, we don't see infrared and we don't see ultraviolet. But there are certain animals uh, in the animal kingdom that do see infrared and ultraviolet. So we have quite a limited experience of reality compared to some animals. If we were to experience all of physical reality it would be absolutely overwhelming for our nervous system 
So the theory actually is that we have a basically a kind of operating system that we experience. It's like a sort of sort of strange sort of hallucination. We we hallucinate our reality, and we hallucinate a kind of, kind of dumbed down graphical interface of our reality in order for us to stay alive, right? So from an evolutionary point of view, the only purpose uh, of, of sight is to stop us from dying and uh, and live long enough for us to be able to procreate. That's what evolution wants from us. So basically, what it does is it shapes our uh, apparent physical reality to to a, a, a dumbed down graphical interface that allows us to to function. So that's what I found um, fundamental to this. And, and I kind of realised that as filmmakers, what we're doing is we're we are selecting from what we believe is physical reality to uh, we're, we're making selections, you know, our framing, our lighting, everything we do in order to, to move our viewers emotions. But what we don't realize is that selection has already happened, happening to us through our biology. So we don't have a direct access to physical reality in a way, in a way it's similar to a viewer of a film doesn't have direct access to the physical reality of the film they're watching. Do you see what I mean? So that's why film is so fundamental to our being, because it's a question of identity. We, we very deeply identify with it, because it's actually part of the process that we're actually going through as humans. And that's that sort of, I'd say that's at the base level of, of my understanding of cinema now, is that it's actually fundamental to us. Wow. And, and how did all of this knowledge feed into your own filmmaking? How did your practice change, like the before and after? What was that like for you? Um, well, it's still happening at the moment. I mean, um, it takes time for, you know, I, I have to sort of think about these things. As you can probably tell from my responses, I'm still kind of working on on some of my theories and um, and still I'm still kind of trying to um, research it because it's such a big area to get into. Um, in terms of consciousness, that is. And then applying that back to cinematography, there's two kind of main areas that I, I guess I could explain of how I have applied it back to cinematography. One is um, the human face. For example, the biologists, the evolutionary biologists, believe that we have evolved to, to recognize the human face over most other objects. Like the human face is of great interest to us. And the reason for that is it gives us all of our kind of... Um, our social cues as to how to survive, right? As I said before, it's a graphic. If we see vision as a graphical interface in order to survive, the human face is key to that. Because by looking at other human faces and being able to read certain kind of emotions from that, from that face, we can we can work out whether they're friend or foe, whether we're attracted to them, whether we're repulsed by them. You know, all of this stuff is key to our survival. We're wired to basically see human faces, uh, to kind of hallucinate the faces. Now, there's, a, there's an optical illusion that I use in my talk where I show a, a, like a, a Charlie Chaplin mask. It's a vacuum-molded mask. And so it's, um, it's, uh, it's a hollow mask, basically. And it, and it rotates uh, on this plinth. And as it rotates, so first... Uh, you see the, the, the outside uh, part of it. And so it rotates around. You see, you recognize it as Charlie Chaplin. And then when it rotates around the back, the hollow side of it, it's like a, a concave inverted face. But what happens bizarrely is our, our minds hallucinates the, uh, a face because we're, we're so designed. We're, as I say, we're, we're, um, uh, we've evolved to recognize faces. So we actually hallucinate the face again uh, outwards so you actually see the nose and the face coming out from the mask it's a very strange experience to see and it's a very clear kind of uh, indication of how we hallucinate faces so to sort of take that into the realms of cinematography the human face is fundamental to our kind of needs uh, of survival therefore it's fundamental to kind of like storytelling right so really 
when I started thinking about lighting, I was thinking about, well, really, cinema is, um, whether it's long form or short form, it's, it's fun, you know, mainly it's a, a sequence of, of human faces with different emotions to tell a story. So it's like a series of portraits, right? So I started thinking about the fundamentals of all cinematography is how you light the human face. So you can think of it as going into a room uh, and lighting a room, uh, you know, or you can see it as a person in a room and you're lighting that human face moving through the room. Do you see what I mean? So depending on what emotions you want to convey of the human face, you lead backwards from there as to how you should light the room. Do you see what I mean? So it's a sort of different way of thinking about it. It's just sort of understanding the importance of how we gather information and how we survive as humans through recognising um, different emotions in, 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 by, by viewing the human face. And like I say, applying that to cinematography. I, I'm, I'm really, really intrigued in, in what you're saying. I'm just kind of digesting it, but definitely the words that you're saying, emotions, light, and, you know, understanding what it is that you want to say in order to be able to say it. These are all things that definitely resonate with me on, on a photography level. But cinematography is a completely different monster in and on its own. And I know that from some experience, um, I found it really difficult, actually, going from stills to cinematography. It's, it's a different monster. Um, but I want to go back deeper into your work. So, um, so you're best known for your advertising, for, um, advertising work for some major food and retail brands. What is it that draws you to these disciplines and to this particular short form of, I guess, storytelling? I kind of sort of want to be able to do per as perfect crafts as I'm allowed. You know, I like to have time to craft an image through light, kind of like a painterly approach. And I find that short form certainly used to, not, maybe not so much now, we, we, we're, we're under more time constraints now, but certainly we had, the, we had the freedom to really kind of refine an image. And also to, for, for it to work, for commercials to work, for the commercial um, product to work, it needs to be communicating so quickly. There needs to be like an efficiency in the communication. So it's not like you, you, you have time to... to um, to sort of to lead someone through your story, you have to kind of catch them quite quite immediately. So there's a certain kind of what I call a limbic response to that. You need to sort of have a sort of you know apparently people judge very very quickly with commercials whether they're interested or whether whether they're attracted to something or repulsed or repelled by it. It's like it's it's almost like it comes before speech. It comes before thought. It's kind of like an old brain response. So in order to to do that to catch viewers' attention, you need to be able to work very. I think in quite a refined way with color and light. Um, and that's what interests me. Yeah. And on that, are there any particular examples of when color and light came together for you to tell a story and evoke a particular emotion? Well, I mean, it certainly happens with all, all beauty and food. There's an example I use in the talk where I show carotene levels of skin. It's not melanin. It's not, not melanin levels. So it's not to do with race. It's actually to do with, with how much ox oxygenation is in the skin. And that's to do with carotene levels. So the more um, healthy the skin looks, the more attractive we are to someone. So beauty and, you know, any, any, making anyone look uh, attractive is, is, is a part of that. So good color science and be, being able to understand, uh, you know, how to, how to get um, the correct colors in the skin is very important. And also with food, uh, so food photography obviously is primary. Um, if you're, you either 
uh, you know, you, are, you, you basically, it's a, again, it's another limbic system response. You're either going to get someone to feel hungry when they see your, your, your imagery or, or not, right? And I think a lot of that's down to, to the same process, the same process of basically being able to photograph something that, that has the correct, uh, the correct colours uh, in order for it to feel, um, you know, like it's, it's creating that emotional response. And I'm wondering, do you feel like all this knowledge of like human perception and sort of the, the behind the scenes of the human eye and all the stuff that you now know, which you didn't know before, does that ever get in the way for you in, of, in the process? Like, does it ever intervene with the process of creation that it becomes too intrusive? Or do you feel like it always really informs what you do in a way that's quite positive? Well, I, I have a kind of um, on set, there's a sort of sort of trying to be in flow with things. I mean, what I've learned from the consciousness journey, actually, is that there's a whole other kind of area that I researched, which is, um, which is about free will. So by going into looking into consciousness, um, you also start questioning the concept of free will. If you don't mind, I'm going to go back to when I first started speaking about the fact that the, the biology of the eye is so flawed. Uh, I think, uh, just to complete that, so the biology, the physics of the eye is so flawed, so how do we see so well? And the, the, the explanation for that is that there's a higher processing going on in, in, in vision that is like an algorithmic type feedback processing going on that um, is a software. In a way, it's like if we, if we compare it to cameras, it's like having a, a relatively poor lens and poor chip. Uh, and having very, very good software, very, very good software to kind of make up for that. And that's basically what happens in humans. Like we have this sort of this flawed um, biology, but then we have this kind of higher visual processing, which it's almost like it's, it's very hard to separate that from the consciousness uh, thing I was talking about. So it's, this kind of stuff's going on that's at, it's out of reach, but, but it's, um, it's making a huge difference to our experience. Now, if you compare that to kind of this idea of free will or this idea of, um, of, of being in flow, so there's something going on that we can't, we don't have direct access to. It's something beyond us. It's, it's, just, it's this mystery that we exist through. So in a way, it's like we don't have a life. Life flows through us. Do you know what I mean? So when I'm on the set, rather than thinking too much about what I'm doing, I'm sort of trying to allow the stuff just to happen do you see what I mean so it's, it, so in a way it's kind of like a spiritual exercise for me it's more of being freer than before I mean there's a certain learning curve that everyone goes through and I think the learning curve is as a cinematographer is I remember someone saying you spend the first 10 years of your career basically climbing up this technical mountain to, to really understand and learn cinema uh, and then once you get to the top of that mountain you try and forget everything and start making films and in a way, I think that's a beautiful uh, explanation for that. So there's this conscious mind trying to learn all this stuff. But when you're actually on a film set, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're trying to allow the flow of creativity to come through you. But this is, a, <laughs> I don't want to get too deep into this because this is, it's a whole, it's quite, you know, like a lot of these theories, they're quite, they're quite challenging to our sort of conceived perceptions of reality and yeah, I'm, as I say, I'm still working through them. So, <laughs> well, as you're working through them, is there free will in your choice of camera equipment? And if so, what what <laughs> what camera and lenses does your free will allow you to use? Well, speaking of Canon, I um, I'm, I'm I've always been fascinated by lenses. Um, I I've always found them kind of magical, kind of the, the sort of magical elements to cinematography for me are, uh, are kind of. The lights, the lights, the application of light and the lenses. I think there's kind of something kind of, um, it's like a kind of alchemy happening. So um, I've always been really interested in lenses. So I, I mean, I have my own sort of Canon lenses. I have some K35 lenses and 
the LM LTMs, is it? The um, the old rangefinder lenses. That actually, I saw uh, recently. I saw um, uh, Jacques Schneider did a thing called Army of the Undead. I think it was, uh, and I saw he was using these old um, Canon lenses on that. Just had a sort of such a romance to them. Uh, so that inspired me to get a set of these these lenses rehoused by um, True Lens Services. So yeah, I, I am quite into certain equipment and um but for me like i say fundamentally it's the application of light that's the thing i'm most interested in i with the set notes um breakdowns i do on instagram what i tend to do is i do lots of monitor shots to show um how close we are in terms of the colors the colors that we're using and everything in the lighting how close we are to the actual finished result so i like to try and i sort of pride myself in the fact that we can we can kind of like get quite close to how it ends up looking on set, you know, in camera, rather than relying too much on post. That's really refreshing to hear, actually. And and just staying with the camera a little bit, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on Canon's uh, color science um, in the cameras. And are there any particular areas that you think it, the cameras particularly shine? Well, I think the Canon Canon color science is uh, going back to this idea of um, of the fact that we don't see reality we see uh, like a representation that keeps us alive. Uh, I'd say that the color, the Canon color, color science, I think so, you know, that you asked me earlier about what I've learned from this research. Well, I think the fundamental thing is that our job really is to move emotions. Our job isn't to represent reality because as I argued earlier, uh, that reality is a questionable thing to begin with. So trying to represent that is a, is a bit of a fool's errand. So what you should be doing, is should be trying to get to move emotions in order to, in my work in order to sell products but in order to entertain or in order to, to try and um you know educate people about life right so um what canon have done is they've basically in their color science i believe that what they've done is they've sort of skewed the, the colors to create i would argue more pleasing imagery so with skin tones for example rather than um go for a kind of absolute representation of how the skin should look they've um they've sort of I think the reds are slightly more orange and it blends in with the greens more. So you, hand, you end up with these really kind of like glowing skin tones. That's what I saw first with the K35s. I was looking at some lens tests online. And if you look at the K35s compared to other lenses, there's this kind of glowingness of the skin that it's really hard to get with other lens manufacturers. Canon do it really well. Uh, so, and I think that's an understanding of, uh, of how to create pleasing skin tones. And that isn't representing reality. That's representing something that moves our emotions. Well, it, it sounds like technology is certainly something that's really important in your work. So I'm interested to hear like the, the camera technology and how much that impacts your creative process and your decision making. Um, and basically how important things are like a camera sensor are to your ability to process color and do the kind of things that you really want to do in your work. Um, well, I started out shooting film um that's where I really, I really started and learned uh you know my craft and then uh we entered the sort of digital um um realm and um now we're dealing with different cameras of different colors color sciences in, in, in each camera uh and um and then we have um the, the the evolution of lighting where we started off with um with tungsten and uh and uh hmi lighting and then we had some fluorescent lighting and and now we're in the led world and the thing about led lighting is that there's um a, a, quite a 
uh, it's kind of some people refer to it as color chaos because there's quite a lot of uh, areas in in uh, in uh, well certain 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 lighting you've got to be very mindful of because the, the, the problems with LED lighting is fun. Firstly, you don't always get what's called a full spectral response. So there's certain colors that sometimes are missing from the LED uh, lighting. Uh, you know certain certain lights, and then secondly. The age of the light also affects that as well because the dyes in the LED over time, they fade. So you have to be very aware of the colors that you're getting from these lights. And so if you're doing sort of high-end lighting and you want to have, you know, for, for example, you're doing food photography and you need to have a full, what we call a full spectral response and all the lights need to be balanced and need to be doing what you expect them to do, then that becomes a problem with, with LED lighting. So actually, in some ways, cinematography has got easier because, you know, shooting on film was always quite tricky because you didn't really see what your results were until it was too late to fix um well without massive expense and nowadays you have certain things that are way more um convenient like you have monitors and you can actually see your final image on the monitor or close to it and um but the problem is you have this new technology so actually incredibly convenient having rgb led lights are so convenient but the problem is like i say is that you can't rely on them always giving a full spectral response you could be very careful the manufacturers that you work with uh, you know the equipment you use uh, and then to add to the mix and every camera has a different color space so there's a whole kind of workflow you've got to think about how you how first Firstly, the lights you use on set uh, and how you capture that uh, and how that workflow kind of works throughout the whole, the whole process. Right. And you, re you recently used Canon's uh, FlexZoom 50mm 2.4 lens. And I'm, I'm really interested to know what impressed you about that lens and how did you find that it, it performed in relation specifically to light and color? So the reason why I would always use prime lenses is because um, they were faster, uh, faster in terms of the amount of light they allow through uh, the lens. Uh, so I used to be able to work, particularly on Super 35, we wanted to work Super 35 sensor size. We wanted to work at narrow depth of fields because it, in color cinematography, it, it allows you to direct the eye more. It allows, you know, uh, environments that, you know, you maybe don't have such control of light. Um, you can actually direct the viewer's eye by using focus and it softens the background. So it's a nice way of getting into the sort of psychology of the characters to have a narrow depth of field. And it's something that we believe aesthetically kind of works now. Ironically, actually, right at the beginning of kind of, you go back in, 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 in cinematography to kind of, uh, you know, um, films like Sisters and Kane with Greg Tolland that, that everyone everyone back then was more interested in deep focus quite you know having as much depth of field as possible to show off uh, the lighting and, uh, and the set design and uh, and staging things in depth but nowadays we're very interested in sort of shallow depth of field with Super 35 we'd, I'd often shoot on prime lenses to try and allow me that control over the over the depth of field and allow me to soften the backgrounds but now we're shooting larger formats uh, and the flex zoom is, is 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 covers full frame, so you can you can use that with larger. It's one of the few lenses that does actually cover full frame at the moment. So you get to basically shoot with a with a, a larger sensor, and what that does, the larger the sensor, the more narrow the depth of field is. So you actually don't have to shoot like at one four anymore. You can shoot at two eight and have a similar look. Well, actually, I'd argue it's a it's it's well, it's a different look because basically you're using slightly wider lenses uh, on uh, all the lenses. Your focal lengths become wider by by virtue of it being a larger format, but the backgrounds are still staying soft. So basically, what I'm trying to say is that the large format zoom now is quite a useful uh, lens because. I would be put off zooms by virtue of them being too slow, but two eight. I think it's a two. Is it a two three lens? I'm trying to remember now, but it's it's around a two eight mark, uh, and and that uh, isn't a problem in terms of depth of field. Because actually, on large formats, I don't really shoot 
that much more open than 2A anyway. So therefore, I could have the zoom in replacement for the set of primes and get an image that was equal, in my view, to using primes. So that's the first thing. And that particular zoom, I found, it just had a, again, it had a Canon skin tone. So it had these sort of very smooth skin tones. And it had a really nice sort of highlight roll off and it, it managed to hold onto the highlights really well. Uh, we tried flaring the lens and it just had a nice, when we could get a flare, it had a nice, a nice sort of, colors to it had nice colors to the flare but you know but it, again it held highlights without flaring too much so it was, a, it was definitely a modern lens that um had quite you know a good dynamic range but really i think the feel of it is a thing like it, i think you get the impression from hearing me is that i'm really into the emotions of things rather than the technical side of things even though i kind of go into a bit of the technical stuff around uh anatomy of the eye and the sort of psychology of it all but really fundamentally i'm into the emotions and how things feel because i as i say i think that's truer to um to what we're actually interested in as humans so the the, the lens felt like a high-end lens it felt like a kind of cinematic lens it had a cinema feel to it, it had the kind of richness to it amazing and um one of the things you've become well known for is your series set notes which is on instagram which basically offers the kind of knowledge and, you know, practical insight that we're discussing here today. And I'm, I'm interested to know how and why did you start this series? Uh, well, when I was, uh, I started uh, DOPing when I was about 25, back in the noughties, the early noughties, actually late nineties, probably. And that was, um, back then we didn't really have it was more of an apprenticeship on set. So you, you, would, you would actually be expected to be on a film set working as an assistant for many years before you got to do a creative role as, you know, like a DOP. So I actually managed to get, to, to, to get quite lucky and I got in with a few directors quite early on. But I didn't have much set experience. And because of that, there's massive holes in my, in my understanding, both technically and in terms of the politics of the film set and how to manage the whole role of being a DOP. And it took me years to learn this stuff. And, you know, sometimes at quite great cost because I'd make serious mistakes, not necessarily technical mistakes, but more kind of political mistakes on, on set where I'd, you know, I'd overstep sometimes and I wouldn't, you know, understand the bigger picture. Uh, so it took me a long time to learn that. And then, um, and then I remember when I was that age, I really wished that I had some kind of mentor that I could have gone to that could have helped me with that whole process. And so basically the reason why I brought I, I, I started set notes is because now I'm I have more experience and I I've put myself in the mind of that 25 year old thinking, well, I'd love to have this mentor that I could go and ask questions to or, or at least have um some kind of transparency on what happens on a film set. And I think the thing about what happens on on professional film sets from a DOP point of view, it's more important to understand the reasons why we do things rather than actually what we're doing sometimes, you know. So it's all right, all right placing a light here and a placing a light there. But unless you know why they're using them, I don't think you've got the full picture because, it, it, like I said, it's back to the emotions, the intent behind something that's really important. So what I wanted to do with set notes is sort of explain to people what my thought process was behind the decisions I make and try and sort of bring them into the whole kind of, uh, you know, just bring them into the whole um, um, journey with me of why, you know, what I'm doing and, and why I'm doing it. Uh, and I just thought it was valuable Just sort of, I thought I got to a point with my learning of sort of thinking that if I give it all away and just, just show everyone what I'm doing and I can create a kind of community around that, then I'll learn by virtue of people asking me questions, I'll learn on that journey as well. It's like there's something to be said about not holding on to information yourself, but sharing information and then allowing the community to feed back into that information. And I think then you all, you all grow and you all learn at a faster rate. 
So that was it, really. And then I saw, also recognised the fact that there's uh, the professional sort of film set world, it's sort of the professional world I kind of came up from, I kind of grew up in, which is, um, uh, you know, like I said, it used to be this kind of um, apprenticeship sort of model where you'd work for an assistant for many years and you work your way up the camera department. And then there's this kind of new world that's, that's emerged that's basically sort of videographers that basically buy a bit of equipment and start approaching clients directly and sort of, you know, it's like a punk generation. They sort of do it on their own terms, which is which is brilliant. The only problem with it is, is you get to a bit of a glass ceiling with that. And when you want to sort of up your game and go into a bigger production, it's very hard to do that because you only know a certain way of working. You somewhat sometimes a one you know a one person band, you know, uh, you you know doing a lot of stuff yourself. And to get into actually having to organize crews and knowing how to delegate to crews and stuff, that's very important. Uh, and also using more equipment on set and knowing how to kind of function with that is very important so i thought that what set notes could do is it could kind of bridge the gap between this sort of professional film set world and this videographer world yeah well i think this part of this idea that you mentioned about sharing and stuff i think is is something i'm noticing also as i get older and in my career and i think when i was younger i don't feel like people were doing that but i also think social media has really helped with allowing people to have the opportunity and the platform to do that, whereas before it was quite restricted. So obviously you've chosen social media to do that, Instagram specifically. And I'm wondering wondering why was this like the outlet you chose? And is there anything particularly good about Instagram that um, attracted you to that platform? Well, one of the things I like about Instagram is that it shows a, a chronology, chronology of the work that you post. So it's really nice, I think, going back in and scrolling back and seeing the history of someone's well, I, I did a podcast recently with Ian Pondstuhl, uh, and I went onto his website. He's he's a really great um, commercials director, uh, and I went onto his website and I noticed that what he'd done is something I'd never seen before. He put all of his work in in its chronology. So his first student film was at the bottom of the stack, and then his latest job was at the top of the stack, which a lot of directors and most DOPs don't do because you want to show your best work a lot of work you want to hide but he was being completely warts and all he was showing everything he'd ever done pretty much in the order that it'd been done which is great for me because when I was researching doing a podcast with him I got to see his development as a director and to see how how he developed um so I quite like the history of Instagram and the fact that you can kind of scroll through and see a chronology of of posts uh, so I thought that has some value, and I thought if, if we if we do these set notes breakdowns, we can do them incrementally, and in, in the future at some point it will be like a body of work that you can look through. And also, I thought it's another way of sort of of curating a showreel because what you're doing with with work on your website um, is you're showing pieces of work, but with Instagram, what you're actually doing is you're showing stills, video, and BTS of that job of those jobs. So it's a kind of it's a different way of, of curating your work. You can, you can do it with the finished product or you can do it with the process of, of making that work. And sometimes I think to some viewers that might be more interesting of seeing the, how you did it as, alongside the finished results. I know it's, it's a kind of educational tool, but I think that, um, that ultimately it's something that I hope, I mean, I haven't at the moment managed to get uh, direct work from Instagram, but the, the, the goal of it was to educate, but also was to kind of keep myself relevant in an industry that's actually quite fast moving. So, and I'm, as I, as I you know, say, I'm, I'm an older, older person now. So I thought, you know, it's quite important to stay, to try and stay ahead, you know, abreast of the times. And I thought Instagram was a good, a good platform for that. I, I do, I should say though, that I am now moving into podcasting as well. 
Um, because what I realise is that there's only so much I can talk about in terms of my work. And what I'd like to do is to open up a platform for other people uh, to, to, to share with me. So I can invite kind of uh, uh, other directors and other DOPs on to discuss their work. So you see the, the podcast as an extension of set notes, but it's you speaking to other people? Yeah, so it's, it's the same. So it's the same kind of spirit of set notes in the sense that what we're doing is we're showing warts and all we're sort of showing the process of what we do and we're doing it in a really kind of honest way we don't want to get into too much of the technical side of things because that's already done and i don't want to get too much into long form as well because long form is very very much celebrated on on all kinds of media platforms and i was more uh, wanting to focus on what i do which is short form because i think that is um it should be celebrated in its own right um but also it's the way that a lot of people kind of enter the industry so i think it's got a lot of value in terms of education of how you can show people how things are done uh in a professional way well, I think, um, again, like one of the, the really great things about social media is that it gives you this direct link to your audience and people that want to come for questions or just give you some reactions. So what's been the feedback to the Set Notes series on Instagram so far? What have what have people been telling you? I haven't got any negative feedback. It's always it's always been quite a positive thing. I think fundamentally that's because the spirit of it is it's a non-profit and uh we do it for the love of it really uh and for the love of sharing and like i said for me it's very important to build this kind of community of, of filmmakers that's that's fundamental for me i think on an emotional level for me it's like i'm trying to build family <laughs> you know so like i like the idea when i'm on a film set the thing that i enjoy the most the thing that i remember from the jobs that i do the most is actually the relationships i have on that set and that sense of family that i have and certainly with my lighting department now i have a lighting department that we're developing these lighting techniques at the moment with these reflectors and and some keener flow kind of color science we've been sort of developing these techniques and the people that i've been doing that with i've been sort of training them up from you know, um, having very little experience of actually being very, very capable. And so we kind of create a sort of family around that uh, of people that are sort of learning from us. Um, and uh, so that's, that's been really satisfying to me. And the feedback from, uh, from uh, the community is, I mean, they're just sort of, they're pleased to, to know that someone's willing to, to break down stuff that previously was, was um, uh, kind of elusive to, to find. So I think they're just happy for that. When we do the live events, we do get quite a good turnout for the live events. And I think, yeah, I think, I think the responses, I particularly think for London, uh, there's not a lot of these sort of film events, sort of networking events happening. Uh, there's an event called Cine Circle that I went to, and I was, I was really shocked at how much how much how much appetite it is particularly for younger people because you know let's remember that media courses now are the most oversubscribed courses in the world and so many people want to get into this industry so there's a huge appetite for this sort of education i think uh, and like i said the short form is particularly important because that's the access for m many people so the, yeah the, the the response we've been getting has been very positive but like i said for me it's important to, to try and build on that and to create community around that yeah, and I, I think media courses are also over, like, extremely expensive. So I can see people also gravitating towards what you're creating for additional information or, you know, self-learning, I suppose, in, in a certain way. Uh, to go back to the lighting crew, for example. So traditionally, I would work with Experience Sparks uh, on the film set. And then when I started developing this new lighting system with, with, um, uh, with Dado, actually, it's a, it's a reflector system that we use, um, we started. I started realizing that these sparks didn't really understand it, and and it actually requires kind of quite um, 
sort of finesse in terms of when you set these reflectors, you've got to be quite gentle with them. <laughs> and traditional film sparks didn't necessarily want to learn about it or have the sort of um, patience for it. Uh, and I started realizing that that's probably not going to work. So I started thinking, well, I need to train people up in this separately. And so I started meeting these young filmmakers that wanted to understand cinematography and they weren't necessarily interested in lighting at the time but they worked they came to me you know through set notes saying that I want to learn more about cinematography and I said well if you want to learn about cinematography then the black art of that is, is lighting so really you need to learn about lighting so we started we started kind of like uh finding these this sort of new new generation of sparks that we could work with purely because they want to understand filmmaking now the old generation of sparks were basically electricians that sometimes were working on building sites and would work in the film industry because they got paid more money right so they weren't necessarily interested in film well certainly when they first started they weren't interested in film but this new generation are just interested in in in, in filmmaking and they they they, move, they levitate towards uh lighting because they, as i say i i explain that to be the, the the area that they're, they're going to learn the quickest or they're going to certainly learn the, the deepest um, um lessons in in cinematography so ian as a as a photographer myself i'm kind of sitting here listening to all of this knowledge that you've gained through your research and i'm wondering like how does this apply to me so do you do you find that there is an intersection there that with the knowledge you've learned that it also applies to stills photography yeah i mean i don't see uh, why it should be any different the way we scan an image when it comes to stills and we scan an image when it comes to, to motion picture are different. So, for example, with motion picture, we're drawn, we're drawn through a sequence of images. Uh, and we have this thing called foveal vision, which basically means that, um, that our center, the center of our eyesight is sharp and, and, and uh, is the, most, the most saturated color. And as our, as our, uh, our, our periphery vision, as it moves away from the center, it gets softer. Uh, and lacks a slight desaturation of color. Now, this is something you might not be aware of because, as I say, there's so much higher visual processing happening in the brain that it fills in a lot of these gaps. But if you actually take your thumb and you put your two thumbs together uh, arm's length away and you focus on one thumb and you move the other thumb slightly, maybe, uh, you know, like five or six inches over to the left, you, you realize how quickly that second thumb goes soft in your periphery. So we have this thing, foveal vision. So the way we scan images is we have the center sharp area and then we have this periphery area that's softer so what we're doing when we're looking at images we're scanning them we're making up a little matrix of of attention points and we've, we're, we're piecing it together um now we're not consciously necessarily aware of this but we have this um this rapid rapid eye movements called saccades that basically the eyes sort of busily scanning an image you can actually sense it for yourself if you put your hand your fingers over your eyelids and you you just move your eyes around you you notice that your eyes are actually moving in very jagged movements um and the sort of temporal buffering of our uh, psychology sort of smooths this out. So when it comes to reading a stills image and reading a motion picture image, we, we do it very differently. So motion picture images, as I say, we're drawn through the image. And with stills image, we scan the image because we have more time with it. So let's take this in terms of um, uh, the difference between the optics. So the optics of stills lenses, for example, are more interested in edge-to-edge -edge sharpness um, and having everything kind of like a flat plane of sharpness because you're, you're scanning the image from left to right in a different way. Whereas with motion picture, you don't have time to do that, so you're sort of drawn through the images. So with motion picture lenses, it's, it's more important to have a sense of sharpness and, and a softness left and right, uh, top and bottom, because that way it's more akin to the human experience. So um, um, 
So with old, for example, the interest with cinematographers using older lenses that are softer on the edges, that's because our human experience of going through motion is, is more akin to that. Um, so to answer your question, there's certain aspects of um, the colour science, I would say, is equally relevant with stills and with motion picture. Um, uh, movement obviously isn't relevant. Um, uh, the, the recognizing of the face as human faces are, and the way the portraiture and, and faces are, are, are fundamental. I would say that's, that's um, uh, transferable to both formats, um, to both forms, I should say. Um, but when it comes to um, the way we actually uh, view an image, we view an image very differently with stills as we do with motion picture. Amazing. Thank you for going. I mean, I would think from my point of view, I would have thought that there would be a correlation, like it would extend into stills photography as well. So it's it, it totally makes sense. Right. Well, I've saved my favorite question to the end. And I'm wondering if you have a single piece of advice you'd like to give uh, cinematographers, what would that be, Ian? Yeah, I'd say that like um, I was talking about at the beginning of this conversation, in a way, what I've kind of realized is that Understanding your emotions when you're experiencing something um, visual um, or experiencing anything in life, really, when you understand your emotions and why you're feeling a certain way, and you're, a you're able to recreate the, that, that atmosphere of that experience. So um, being a kind of, so the advice I'd give is like being a visual psychiatrist uh, and then just being aware of your own process and, and the journey that you're going on as a human. And, you know, like, for example, we're going to take it from a lighting point of view. It's being aware of the changes of light and how that affects you emotionally and being able to recreate that on a film set in order to affect other people. I think it's a key to good cinematography. So it's like being, becoming aware of your own process and your own experiences in life and knowing how to recreate those experiences for dramatic effect. That's, that would be my advice. Amazing. Um, well, Ian, thank you so much for um, sharing your insights today. I kind of feel like a little bit of a tsunami went through my brain and a lot of my ideas about perception and seeing have kind of been shaken up a little bit, which I think is great. So thank you for that. Thanks for having me, Laura. It was really great chatting to you and uh, giving me the opportunity to explore some of these ideas. You can find Ian by searching um, Ian Murray DOP, all one word on Instagram. You can also find the set notes series there. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate and subscribe in the episodes listing. If you have any thoughts or feedback on today's episode or the podcast as a whole, why not reach out to us on social media? You'll find our details in the description below. We'd love to hear from you.